Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Hello, friends. Welcome to the Mosaic Life Podcast. My name is Trey Kaufman, and it has been my great pleasure to bring you conversations with inspirational people from around the world who are living their best lives every single day. I mentioned last week the podcast will be coming to a close on June 7th after 150 episodes and almost three years of weekly conversations. That doesn't mean, however, that I won't continue having life-changing and life-affirming conversations on how we can all live our best lives. They're simply going to be taking on a different form. And as I continue working on what that will look like moving into the future, you can follow along on Instagram at Trey Kaufman. I'm so grateful to have been given the chance to connect with my guest today. Moose has lived and continues to live a life I truly aspire to. He's made a career out of spending as much time as possible outside and working with others to educate them on how to enjoy our national parks safely. Moose is an advocate for preserving our natural world and the world is lucky to have him on its side. Moose has worked in formal and alternative education for more than 30 years in Europe, Africa, Australia, and North America. He worked for Outward Bound as a field instructor, trainer, and course director for more than a decade. For the last two decades, he has worked as an education and senior projects director at National Parks for Nature Bridge. Moose has worked for Yosemite Search and Rescue as a senior trainer for Swiftwater Rescue and as the lead family liaison officer and trainer since 2007. Please welcome to the podcast, Moose Mutlow. Moose, how are you? I'm good, Trey. Thank you very much. Good. It's so awesome to connect with you. Um, I know we spoke for the first time a month or two ago, and I just have been so looking forward to this conversation. Um, as I learn more about myself and what actually brings me joy and contentment, so much of that is being outside, being outside, being outdoors. And I know we spoke uh, briefly about rock climbing, about uh, about mountain biking, and all of those things. And just the the life that you're living is it's uh, it's fantastic. And I'm so looking forward to talking with you about everything that you're doing out there. Great. Um, so we, right before we, we spoke, you mentioned, uh, that, that spring is springing, uh, you're, you're in California, correct? I'm in California. I'm about, a, I actually live about an hour outside Yosemite national park, but where I work predominantly is within the park. Oh, that's great. I, you know, I, I've, I've been to California once or twice. I've never, I've honestly never visited Yosemite and I, I, you know, full transparency, I didn't know much about it prior to watching uh, Free Solo a handful of years ago. And since then I've, you know, obviously become obsessed. It is kind of uh, the, the Mecca for rock climbers. I don't think I would ever climb uh, Yosemite, but it's, it's always something fun to aspire to. And it's just such a, a gorgeous looking park. And, it, and I think the other thing about Yosemite, while it has that uh, global pool for the climbing community, yeah. it, has, it has so much more to offer in terms of the alpine uh, hiking routes. Yes. Or there's, an, there's amazing accessibility in areas for people to be able to get high in the Sierra, to get out of their car and access a glacial lake. Um, and it, but it's also the, the place that Yosemite... Uh, stands in the mythology of national parks in yeah. this country and and around the world as a place that was identified as special during a cr- time of crisis in, in America's history. It was it was it was seen as special during the Civil War, and Lincoln set aside the land at that time to be preserved. And when we say set aside, it's, I think it's important to recognize at the same time there were thriving communities of. Uh, people who'd lived here for millennia right. who were displaced by parks and the, the parks that we live in today uh, are wonderful places but they also have this tragic history of displacement of in, indigenous groups and as i said groups that lived there for millennia 
How much do you know about that? Because that's not something that I, you know, so much of our history gets kind of watered down and we like to cherry pick the things that make us or our country look good. So I, I don't know a whole lot about that. I mean, how, obviously it sounds like there's a ton of history there. I mean, what, what all do you know about the people who were displaced by Yosemite or, or other national parks? Well, just about any national park around the world has displacement. Yeah. Uh, if you look at if you look at Varinga uh, in Rwanda, which is the home of the mountain gorillas, that's a displacement in a very densely populated space. If you look at Australia, Australia was this amazing country prior to Europeans turning up, and we they looked at this parkland, they looked at this landscape, and, and thought this is amazing. But it was a, a landscape that had been shaped by human. Uh, actions for a long, long time. There's a great book called Black Emu, which looks at this this history uh, through journals by Europeans that came in that talk about the dams or talk about the fire regime or talk about the way in which the environment was changed by by human action. Right. And in and in the Western United States, the use of fire. Uh, whether it was out on the plains or within the Sierra Nevada, had a very active role within people that lived in that area. So it's it, national parks everywhere have got a, this struggle of their great opportunities to go and see animals. Right. But for a long time, people were walking in and around them. Like in the Ngorogoro Crater, you still have Maasai who are living in the park and they're living with herds and they're living around elephant and lion and they've, there's a balance there. They have a part to play in that tapestry. That's that's fascinating. Um, and yeah, again, that wasn't something that I knew a whole lot about. And, I, you know, the history of it, you, th you think about what we as humans and more specifically Americans have done and can do to land that is not protected. Obviously, we are growing rapidly. So I am thankful that we have areas of our country in which are protected and we can go see nature in such a grand and magnificent, magnificent sense. But, you know, there's so much we have to ask ourselves, you know, would it have been better if we would have, would have allowed the, you know, native to stay, stay put, stay where they are, or would we have displaced them eventually? I mean, I, I don't obviously know the answer to that question, but, uh, you know, at, at the very least as, as an outsider, I am thankful that we have these, these parks that we can actually enjoy. Oh, I, undoubtedly. I think my struggle, there's a, the wilderness act in the mid sixties essentially, uh, figured out a way to give the highest level of protection to these areas that were undeveloped by forestry or mining yeah. or they lacked roads. And one of the key pieces in that is to say untrammeled by man, the idea that this, this has no effect by people walking across it or being in it. And that's always been my struggle with the Wilderness Act because it, it ignores this deep history. And a friend of mine actually said to me, hey, you can hold that, you could, that's right, but think about it in level of, preservation and conservation and we, we've got to figure this political piece out we have to figure out this societal piece out but for now it's a holding legislation to make sure that we don't lose this land forever yeah absolutely. so somewhere like barriers is a really good example of where the uh, obama administration made a move for a significant protection of tribal artifacts tribal history it was shrunk and now it's been pushed back out again the idea that those people's cultural history has value the same as the landscape or the animals. That's, I think sometimes within Western culture, we value a picture of an elephant right. over, over the value of someone's home. Right. Yeah, that's, that's a good point to remember. And I, I appreciate you sharing that. Um, you know, it's, it's, I guess, coincidental. I think this morning I was watching, um, I was on TikTok wasting time and I, <laughs> I, 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 I tend to get a lot of videos about people through hiking, you know, some of the uh, long trails in the country, uh, people visiting national parks. And one of the videos was talking about the 
pure, like the absolute mind boggling numbers of people who actually visit national parks over the course of a year. And I mean, upwards of four to 5 million at uh, Yellowstone. And I just, I had no idea that many people visited our parks. And I mean, it's, it's great that people are experiencing these things, but also, you know, the conservation of the land that has to be tricky and that has to be a struggle. I mean, I, it, what I, I also, I, I guess I understand that there have been some limitations put in place for the number of people who can actually visit these parks in any given time. I mean, how, how accurate is that? And how, how difficult is it to maintain our parks when so many people actually go out and visit them? Oh, we, the, the U S I think about 23% of the U S is held by the federal government. So right. Bureau of Land Management, National Forest, it's a smaller percentage of park units, although there's like, I think 425 park units or 423 park units. And there are there are jewels out there that get the millions of visitors. Right. So right. I think the most visited park arguably is Great Smoky Mountains because the interstate splits the park in two and they sort of, they essentially count that as traffic. Okay. Um, I, the idea of parks being loved to death, I struggle a little bit because there's a certain group that's loving them to death. It's <laughs> it's 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 people who have disposable income or people yeah. who figured out the secret code to get a campsite in Yosemite. But for the most part, on public lands, they're underutilized. They're overutilized by maybe groups that, that are in there with extraction and the the groups that. Um, perhaps use them in recreation, have a little less representation on a political level. Right. But it, it, the question that you, you talked about was how do you control it? I don't know. In 2016, which was the centennial of the National Park Service, I think Yosemite had 5 million visitors. And wow. there, were, there were times when you would be stuck in traffic if you were in the valley, which is seven miles long, a mile wide. You could be stuck in traffic for four and a half, five hours and never get out of your car <laughs> because everybody wants to be in that one spot. But 93% right. of Yosemite is wilderness and it's governed by permitting. So it's just these, these honeypot areas that get really heavily impacted. And yeah. different countries have different approaches. So you've got someone like Botswana that identified really early on in its preservation strategy Let's go for high dollar visitors. So if you want to go to Maun and go out the Okavango, you're going to pay very high dollars, but you're going to see very few other people and right. you're going to see huge hurts. Whereas in other parks, maybe the eastern parks in Kenya, where you're maximizing the revenue, you're maximizing the visitation because that's driving the local and national economy. There is, it's an open door, basically. If you can get people through the door, they, they go see it. Yeah, that's great. That's, that's, that's good to know. Um, I, I, I do want to talk about your history. Uh, and I know that's very, that's very broad, but I want to, I mean, you've, you've had such a varied, uh, so many varied experiences in nature. And I mean, you, you didn't, you didn't just pick up and, and start your career in Yosemite. I mean, you've been around the world, correct? Yeah, I've been really lucky. I've worked in Southern Africa. I've worked in Australia. I spent time in Europe being a guide or running a beach concession. And I came to North America. And so 80s, 90s, there was a real opportunity to make a living unlike other places in the world, particularly in outdoor education. Yeah, And, it, and that kept me coming back. Uh, and then the access to wild areas in the U.S., is so easy that you, yeah, every, every day you can find a new place to explore. It's yes. it's not living on a small island that's 70. It, I think in Britain you can never be further than 70 miles from the coast, and it's 993 miles from the furthest northeast to the furthest southwest. Yeah. And it's a small place. It's a packed place. And so when you get the chance to experience the bush in Australia or to be out, on the ocean where you can't see land, that chasing that far horizon becomes, uh, you get driven by that, that yeah. exploration piece. That's incredible. 
you you mentioned uh, a couple of words that I, I want to talk more about outdoor education, and I think that's vitally important. But I, I think so many of us now we were so comfortable in our suburban homes that outdoor education isn't even a a thought in their mind. I mean, when when you hear outdoor education, what does that mean to you? I I think when I was growing up, it was dominated by a group called Outward Bound, who I went on to work for for a decade, and. It was the idea of doing adventure, uh, adventurous hikes or climbing or caving or sailing or canoeing. Yeah. And and now it has morphed into much, much more. You have a whole uh, adventure travel piece where people are having curated bike trips or bike packing where people are doing the Pacific Crest uh, Trail where they're going from the Canadian border down to the Mexican border. Uh, it, it's a much more diverse uh, opportunity. And I, I think it is also it's developed more on a therapeutic level. There's better understanding about the role of nature and right. being immersed in natural rhythm as a healing piece. I just I worked an Outward Bound course down in the Everglades in November. I went back for the first time in 30 years as an instructor for Outward Bound. I wrote a veterans program. And the idea that you you take people out who have this shared experience, you put them in an expedition mindset and you take them to a great place, one of these Gulf side white sand beaches, and you let this uh, experience roll out in dialogue and reflection and journaling that, that impels them forward, that takes them to a healthier place. That is your hope. So it's, so I think outdoor ed is a it's it's less about an ill-fitting rain jacket and soldiering on through the rain to a much more nuanced and specialist uh, industry. Yeah. Yes. You know, the more I have the opportunity to experience nature and the more conversations I get to have with folks like yourself who specialize in the industry, the, the clearer it becomes that nature is so capable and willing to heal us, um, whether or not that's from tech addiction or even, uh, you know, chemical addiction. And I, I mean, you yourself, I, I, you just mentioned that you've, you've worked with veterans, but you also work with addicts, correct? Or have yeah, worked with addicts. I, yeah, I spent time working with addicts. And again, within uh, whether it's within a step program or within people coming to terms with addiction in their family, a lot of times it's, it's, it's getting people to a point where they can just communicate what is going on inside <laughs> and have a degree of honesty with themselves and others in this insulated new environment. Yeah. Uh, that becomes a catalyst for change. You, you, you're, essentially, you're essentially introducing a pattern interrupt. Yes. And I think what nature, ironically, the thing about nature is we're the pattern interrupt in nature. We're the, we're the disruptor. We're the one that has exceeded our natural bounds. And mm -hmm. whereas in nature, it's a system that seeks balance, and so it has ways to address when something becomes overpopulated or a little bit too successful. It has ways to adjust to that. And I think there's some incredible metaphors in the natural world that uh, step through this, this scattered, fake world that so many people live in today. Like, there's a, to me, there's a really big difference in Instagram where you have a curated image yes. and this this facade of what someone's life is or this this representation of their day. And then you're sitting on a beach and out of nowhere, a dolphin rises up and drives a mullet up on the beach and then takes a third of its body out the water and lies on its side and starts <laughs> snapping them up. And then it's gone. And it's, it's a few seconds that feel like minutes, but that yeah. memory lasts a lifetime and there was no photograph because it's right. so spectacular is just burned into your brain and and that is where the power of nature is it it, it exceeds what we see in a high definition uh screen because it it becomes soulful yes 
And I like that idea of it tattooing on the inside. <laughs> so do I. This, yeah, it leaves this this image that uh, that you have to share through your art, or you have to share through spoken word, or through poetry. You, you have to step out and share it because you can't just show somebody who's flicking through a TikTok video. Oh, that's what my day was. You know, you you make such a great point and you helped me with a personal revelation just now. I mean, you can, even if you were, if you, if you were lucky enough to have your phone out, I wouldn't even call that lucky, but if you had your phone out and you actually got that dolphin on video and you've got that experience on video that may still tattoo itself within your, your body for the rest of your life. But somebody to your point, who's flicking through Instagram or TikTok, they see that, that's just going to be a passing video as cool as that might be that will never ever come close to the experience of actually being there. And while I appreciate seeing those sorts of things on those platforms, it is no substitute whatsoever of actually having these experiences yourself. And I, I, I think that is a, I don't want to call it a reminder. I think it's a very valuable lesson for people who spend so much of their time consuming this this media through their this six inch device in their hand, as opposed to actually going out there and taking risk and experiencing new things for themselves. My my wife and I were walking just south of town last weekend, and along a ridge shop, and there were some turkey vultures just playing on the thermals, and they were just coursing the treetops and coming around almost at grass level to do these amazing turns. And it's a bird that we see all the time. Yeah. And my wife's an artist and she stopped to take photographs. And uh, she took this photograph. We'd, we'd be marveling at these birds moving around. And she took this one photograph and she looked at it in more detail. And we blew it up and it had a, a tag on the wing of the dirt turkey vulture. And it's easy to dismiss turkey vultures because there's so many of them. Right. And then with that tag... We ended up going online and figuring out where the bird was tagged. And it was actually tagged down south in Southern California. And it's come all the way up to us. And this story started to play out. And I think there is a place for technology. Right. There's absolutely a place to enhance and, and, and bring a little bit of nuance in there. But the thing I take away was the, the speed of the shadow moving across the top of the grass as it came around the corner and, and having an intake of breath because it's so close, this bird, it's going so fast, it's, is it going to avoid me? And yeah. that's the magic. If you have a sciencey digital piece, which is fascinating, but you have this raw emotion piece that is the, the thing that makes me tingle. Yes. Speaking of that sort of experience and speaking of the power of nature to heal us, are there any experiences in your extensive career and and life outdoors that you can pinpoint in your mind that to, to the point that we're trying to make that it's, you're never going to forget it because it was one of the most incredible, awe-inspiring things you've ever seen? Uh I mean, I've been really lucky to be out in the bush with elephant and had elephant within 15, 20 feet of me, kind of keeping a wary eye on where I'm at. I right. moved by in a herd of 150, which is stirring and, and, and harkens back to this childhood dream to be in Africa and to be on, on the ground feeling Africa. But I think the the actually, actually, the experience that was a, a critical one was when I was very little and we caught an eel in a small stream on the Welsh-English border and we yeah. put it in a bucket and it was a little eel. It was like seven or eight inches long. And do you know anything about the history, what eels do in Europe? Have you, have you got no. Any, so, that, so this is, eel, it's this long snake-like fish. And uh, I remember feeding it uh, ham because that's the sort of basic diet in Britain. Um, and being very disappointed it wasn't eating. But at some point, my family told me about eels. And eels uh, basically swim across the Atlantic to an area called the Sargossa Sea. And, and that's where they spawn. And then the, the elves come back, essentially. So it's, it's a journey of thousands and thousands of miles across open ocean to come back to a tiny st stream in this hilly country. 
And I remember being shocked that this fish would swim so far. And it, 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 it was that point where you go, well, what other amazing things are out there? Right. And so I ended up working in a zoo uh, at one point and had this experience where I was in a, gor a gorilla exhibit on the outside. I'm not in the cage or anything. And it, there are no visitors around. And the silverback had its back up against the wall and was right next to the glass. And I went and sat next to it, essentially separated by glass. Yeah. And I put my hand up against the window, this piece of glass, and then the silverback in turn put its hand up against the window. And there was this, this, this sort of profound connection. It, 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 there isn't any one that, that right. leaps out and says, this is it for me. It's this tapestry. I said, use the word tapestry a lot. Uh, our lives are woven by threads of experience. Yes. And there are definitely golden threads that, that we'll, we'll keep referring back to and go through the decades of our lives. But we're always building that tapestry, so it's whatever the experience is next. I saw an otter the other day. I was out on the river with a friend, and we flipped around, and an otter popped up right next to the boat. And he was just happy to see us in the water, and he gambled around a bit, and he was gone. He ghosted away. And it was a gift in that three or four seconds, and it's put me in a good mood for a month. I love, I love that. I um, I don't think I've ever actually seen an otter in person, but I, I one of my favorite animals by far. I love seeing videos. I, I don't know. I, they're cute. I mean, I, I I will say that they are just they're they're fun to 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 watch. Um, I, I think through your stories, you've helped to remind me that to me it seems like we are trying so hard to separate ourselves from nature when we, I mean, we are nature and we, I think we, we, we tend to forget that. And your experience with the silverback gorilla just, it reminds me that we are, there's, uh, well, and, and that particular example is a very thin layer of perhaps a somewhat thick layer of glass, but this, regardless, we are right there with our, our, our brothers and sisters and other, and other species. And it's so, I think when you remind yourself of that, you can have a little bit more empathy for the other creatures and, and the, the, the plants and animals out, um, out among us. And I, I don't know, I, I think it's a valuable lesson. Well, and I think nature, nature is about community. Yeah. Nature, nature has a space for just about everything in that community. And it, in, in, our, in our culture, we look to stand out as an individual. We, we look to be different. We look to be stronger, faster, and there's a role for that, but it can't be at the loss to the system. It can't be at a loss to the community. And it, it, it's almost as if society has to rediscover community beyond when something goes badly wrong. Yeah. Like I lived in a neighborhood where there's a lot of pettiness, except when winter rolled around, and then everything went on hold because we were all going to get stuck in our car. Yeah. We're all going to need a hand cleaning a driveway and we kind of had to, we had a common adversary, which is winter. And, and the problem is that in the spring it thaws and then it reignites all the pettiness because we haven't got this thing holding us together. But actually you go into fire season and that should hold us together, but it right. doesn't because it, it isn't as immediate a challenge. It, it's, 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 it's a distant concept until the smoke hits your house, you hear the crackling of the flames. Right. And then everybody tries to work together. <laughs> it's, it's, there are areas, by no means all of society, but there are areas within, within society that become so disconnected by selfishness yeah. that the ability to be selfless, which is the core point of community, has disappeared. Yeah. What... Um... What's your work been like in crisis communication and, and search and rescue more specifically? I, I, I thankfully have never been in a position where I, I've had to be rescued from, from the wilderness, but I also live in Columbus, Ohio, where, you know, nature isn't as bountiful as it uh, perhaps is out there. So I'm, I'm curious what uh, your experience has been like uh, in, in that. So, so working in the, as an outdoor guide for decades, you're managing groups of people. So you've always got incidents happening, whether 
it's a sprain on your expedition. You have to spend a few days getting somebody out or snake bites or you're responding to another traveler and then starting to work in national parks, it's more formalized and you, you move into search and rescue teams. And I've worked on the Yosemite search and rescue team for nearly 20 years. And it's everything from early on running up a trail, carrying a big wheel to stick on the bottom of a litter and start racing people down the trail to get them in an ambulance through the multi-day searches. And then over time, uh, very specific skill sets emerge and my my background is a lot in water so water searches and body recovery is one of the things I've done a lot of and then within crisis communication I help coordinate the family liaison program in Yosemite and train nationally for the park service and other agencies on uh, preparing people to be the intermediary between incident command which is responding to the incident and the families that are desperate to know what's happening. Right. And so you act as the instant commander's representative. Yeah, that, that can't be an easy job working with, with families who are desperate to find their loved ones. I mean, there has to be some nuance there and how in the information you give or even how you convey that uh, to those families. I, I mean, is that... It, how difficult is that uh, to actually communicate with those families? Uh, everyone's different. Yeah. I've, I've had incidents where somebody, where I'm working with a family and somebody has passed away in the place that they love and they were yeah. older and they had a great day and they just didn't wake up in the morning and families are wanting to talk about their family member and how much they love the place and how much right. they they potentially appreciated passing away there through the people struggling to get their head around the most awful day. And yeah. it, I, I, I talk about compassionate objectivity, the idea that you, you listen to what people are saying and you give them the facts in the way that you hope that they can digest them and then you, you, you morph those as the, the emotions come out. Right but you, you have to maintain a degree of objectivity because otherwise it's not a sustainable role. It, it, would, it would break your heart every day uh, and, and you would bring that trauma back into your own life. And it, that's a struggle that I've, I've dealt with over the years of dealing with dozens and dozens of deaths, of bringing it back into my life and having to figure out ways to process that that trauma, the yeah. essentially a vicarious trauma of watching other people struggle with their loss, is figuring out a healthy way to uh, move beyond the effects of that. Yeah, absolutely. Is there may no there may not be any one answer to this, and I, I know you 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 like to spend a lot of time on the water side of things, but I mean, is there as you've had such an extensive career are there these these deaths or even injuries are, are there certain things that happen to individuals more often than others is it just simply a lack of education and training um you, you mentioned uh, snake bites earlier and i am terrified of rattlesnakes I, i'm just curious i mean so much of it is having a a, a respect for what nature is and, and being mindful of that, at least to, to me, I mean, is there a certain thing that you see happening more often than others? I, I think people underestimating the implications of their actions and overestimating their competence. Yeah. yeah. So, so if you're in a big city and you're on the sidewalk and you've got four lanes of traffic in New York racing right next to you, you're going to be pretty careful about crossing right. the road. And there's right. always somebody out there who's a bicycle messenger who's zipping in and out. And they're, yeah. they're, they're doing some level of risk management and they're really pushing it. And they get hit not infrequently. Yeah. But when people come to the river where there's essentially it's, it's a highway, it's traveling at a high rate of knots. It has really big implications. If you get it wrong, people don't necessarily make that connection. Oh, if I slip off the curb, if I slip off the bank, right. I'm essentially being hit by a truck. 
And they're so excited in that moment. And they're so potentially divorced from the natural forces and the fact we're very small in that landscape that right. they make very innocent mistakes. I used to I used to be much more scathing and say people were stupid and stuff. And then <laughs> watching the effects of it and hearing about people's lives, I, I, I favor a lot more on unlucky and unaware. Yes. There's, a, there's an innocence in, in the majority of accidents. It's and and so many of them are avoidable. And the one thing I would say is in com the complexity of some incidents can go back to a very single issue in that we see the cascade effect on accidents yeah. where somebody arrives to climb a peak and they, are, they get delayed. So they arrive later at night, so they don't get a full night's sleep right. and they get up with the same goal in mind and they haven't really rehydrated and they haven't adjusted to the altitude. And they go racing out without breakfast and they're just going to eat some power bars on the way up and they take inadequate water. So now that they're, they're, they're not rested, they've got altitude challenge, they've got dehydration and they're hungry and that affects their balance. And before you know it, they've fallen. And so if you went all the way back and said, what could they have done? They could have got up in the morning, had a cup of coffee and said, you know what, I'm just going to stay at this altitude for the day and acclimatize a little. Yeah. And it would have avoided on a very simple letter, le level all of these steps, which are inconsequential on their own. But when they're actually within the connection, within that ladder of risk, they get to a point of exposure really fast. Yeah, that's a, that's a really good point. I mean, does, does that fall back on, on education? I, I, again, I, yeah. I, I feel so very sheltered in that. I, I don't think I've ever actually been to a national park and I, I very much want to change it or just, you know, a major park in general. And I mean, so I, I really feel like, you know, if I, if I want to do something, I want to be prepared for it, but I, I know that's probably not the mentality of most people who, who set out on a, on a, on a hike like that. Well, the, I, I like the idea of rediscovering apprenticeship and mentorship. The idea that through outdoor stores or outdoor organizations, you can get high level training to make right. good decisions on, on your itinerary or what, you should, what skills you should develop. The idea that you learn math and compass skills as well as using a GPS, because when you drop your phone in the river, you're going right. to need to use that map. It, it's just building those skills and then being able to ask for help and having an outdoor community say, yeah, let me help you. Yeah. I think there's, I think there's a rush to expertise uh, that doesn't build the intuitive skill set to allow uh, unexplained decisions to happen. And what I mean by that is, if you go to a river with somebody who's who's run a river for forty years, they will do things without thinking. Right. And if you ask them, they might be able to articulate why they do things a specific way. But it's forty years of distillation. Yeah. And that somebody may have a higher level of proficiency. They might be able to boat much harder water, but they've only got two or three years of experience under their belt. So they've only got, they've got a tenth or less, or a quarter rather, of the, of the experience of that intuitive muscle memory. Yeah. And, and apprenticeship and mentorship is the accelerator there is that it, it's starting to articulate intuition. It's starting to share the deeper knowledge. And that wisdom has a place. And in a, in a fast society that is about likes uh, and reward on that right. instantaneous level, taking time to do something uh, doesn't compute. My my uh, my father-in-law is a craftsman, and he has been this amazing uh, master with me as the apprentice in in building sheds. And I, and I, I give this as an example is that I'm in my fifties, and I did not think I would be serving an apprenticeship uh, to learn how to use tools. So we built right. this shed. And he's imparting this knowledge. And I didn't touch a power tool for like three months. <laughs> I was allowed to hold stuff. 
and I was taught how to measure stuff, but cutting stuff, I was not allowed to do it. And then when I was allowed to cut something, it was under his watch right. and, and very careful. And as a result, I had this really, really strong skill base yeah. and confidence. And I, I think that's for anything. If you look at being the outdoors as a craft, whether you're a hunter or you fish or you boat or you hike or you bike or you do any of those things, to have somebody who's more competent help you on that journey is a gift. Yeah. Yes. And I think, I think oftentimes I get caught up in kicking myself for not having spent the prior 30, 36 years learning certain skills and techniques without, I, I guess I understand the fact that I can learn something new now. It's just, it, it's, it's can be frustrating when you're not good at something, but if you, if you surround yourself with people who are, and they have those expertise and you can learn by association with them and they can show you the right way to do it. It's just, it, it makes that process so much more seamless, I guess. And it allows you to actually gain a deeper understanding of somebody who's been doing it to your point, you know, for 40 years. And that's, to me, that is such a, a great way of learning. And, and there's a whole slew. Of, and I think when we say apprentice, it doesn't necessarily have to be right there. And then it, right. YouTube's an amazing tool for bike maintenance. Right. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> and, and some of the best tutorials we actually saw for a very specific uh, replacement of a brake pad on my bike were Russian. And it was like, so it was in another language. Yeah. And you could still see where the, where the lesson was. Yeah. And I, I, I think that uh, some of the I think the, as much as we have to be good students, we have to encourage people to teach because every parent yes. is a teacher. Yeah. Every every aunt and uncle is a teacher. Every everybody's a teacher. You just need the confidence to get out there and give it a go. And yeah. we we have so much to teach each other if we let us. It's. Uh, it's, again, society is quick to put us into little boxes and say, no, this is what you need to do. Right. And this is how your, this is what your station is in life. And nah, the, the richness of people, the stories that people tell and the richness of people's experience is the greatest school out there. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I did want to ask what, uh, your current work, uh, yeah, you're, you're currently, or you were previously currently, um, working on an environmental science school in Yosemite, correct? Is that still ongoing? Yes. Yeah, so I work for nature bridge, which is the largest provider of environmental education and environmental science education in national parks in the U S before COVID we were doing about 35,000 students a year in multi-day, uh, programs within parks. And my main job is Search and rescue is something you do when you get called out. And the rest right. of the time, I'm a senior project director working on a state-of-the-art 224-bed facility in Yosemite National Park. And that is still ongoing. It's, I took a half-time job in, I think, 2005, and it became full-time, and I'm still plugging away at it. Because it's a good idea. Yeah. When you find a good idea that you say, oh, I, I really believe in that, it's really easy to stay with it because it's so fulfilling. And yeah, it's a good idea to have a permanent home for young people in America's national park that it will be exclusively for education in perpetuity. It's absolutely they, the idea that children are designed out of landscape over and over again, because of liability and noise. Yeah. And, there needs to be more a stronger statement from everybody that children need that place. They need to be at the center of the community because once they once they're at that center, the chance to catch them when they start to drift by role yeah. modeling and the chance to have them happy and laughing and embracing learning that that's that's the place where you that's the that's the future of any community. So what is the, I guess, the scope of this school? Uh, um, I mean, is this, is this a, 
I mean, is this a, a year long type program? What, what, what do the programs like? What age ranges are you working with? Are, are you teaching all subjects or is this strictly outdoor education? So it's predominantly seventh and eighth graders in Yosemite National Park and different grades in Olympic and Golden Gate National Recreation area and out on the East Coast Prince William Forest Park. Uh, and they come for anywhere for three to five days. And it's a residential program that will look at a range of issues, whether it's harder science, so looking at hydrology and water quality, mm-hmm. through to history and looking at where's this land from, how is it, has its use evolved. And there's always going to be a component of emotional and social learning within that because you're working with young people. Yeah. And you get them to work in and around groups and break maybe their social norm to talk to people they wouldn't talk to. And at different yeah. times of the school year, it has a different role. Sometimes it's the start of the school year to set a norm for behavior going forward, or at the end of the year to sort of have a celebration and graduation where they're thinking, oh, you know, what's next year going to be like? What's What are we going to be doing at college? Um, the, each school helps to shape what that experience will be. And then our educators respond to that and, and give a mixture of, physical challenge, maybe going up and down trails with content. That's amazing. Um, I guess my, my next question to follow up to that is how, how do you scale that? Do you have, do you have an interest in scaling that? I, you know, I, I, I don't think I'll offend anyone by saying that our education system in this country is, is it's at a deficit. And I, it's probably because we, there's such a large quantity of, of students going through schooling. And I, I'm not here to, to claim to fix that problem. But I think experiential learning and the ability to learn to think critically and develop your emotional intelligence is, is so critical to how a child is developed into the future that things like this just they they need to be done but how do you do that for every child of school age in America that just seems like an impossible task so I'm, I'm curious if you do have an interest in scaling this and what that might look like so we, we've scaled we've gone to other parks there's some very specific economic features that go into it more than half our students receive some level of financial uh, uh, assistance to attend right and so you're relying on philanthropic dollars to underwrite that. I think you need to have administrations that see the value and you need yeah. to have teachers that aren't overwhelmed. And I think that that's teachers are at the heart of this for yeah. any of it because they're already asked to do too much with too little. Yeah. And having been a teacher in the classroom and realized how hard it was and, and left it very early. I have nothing but respect for teachers. People who yes. do it full time as a career, it's especially after COVID. I just want to give them a hug and, and listen to whatever just happened because yeah. they they're heroes. They they they're they're doing stuff that parents, communities, politicians are shouting at them about, and right. they're trying to do their best. And I I look at what we do. I have the humility in a in a student's career of well let's say they're at school for 200 days a year and they have a 10 let's have say they have a 10-year career it's 2,000 days they're at our program for five days it's a tiny proportion right and so i i look at us as being when when we say educational reform is inspiring kids to be excited to learn something yes because in a classroom it's hard to be excited sometimes and it's hard and you feel lost. And if you can find that moment where the little flash goes off, that little spark goes off, I, that's what you want to do to try and help them find a, uh, a platform to propel them forward. And it, it happens with too few students, but it doesn't stop us from trying. Well, that's, yeah, that, that the mission is an incredible one. And I, I, I'm excited to see that continue growing. So the, the construction is still underway, correct? When, do you have a, a timeline for when that might be done? We're optimistic we'll have our first students in that facility this time next year, maybe. And that's it's uh, right now, we're, we'll continue to operate in the parks under our existing campus. We're actually decommissioning one campus to go to this sustainably built campus. 
And then as we scale up after COVID, the other campuses are slowly coming to life as schools and mass restrictions are being relaxed and it's clearer yeah. to have a, a safer experience. And in, in, in the United States, there are maybe 2022 20, institutes that are not affiliated with Nature Bridge, but still offer stuff in national parks. So yeah. there's, a, there's opportunity in other parks for, for parents and, and, and schools to look at what may be available for their area. That's amazing. I um, I will of course put all of that information uh, in the show notes, and I, I really appreciate you sh- one sharing it, and two, the work you're doing to help build that. That's that's an incredible mission. And and it's something, it says something about America is that I, I was the, the beauty of America for some of us, uh, who get who 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 are able to get opportunity, is. America, in my experience, has looked more of your willing, do you think you can do this job as opposed to prove to me that you have this piece of paper? Yeah. And that has been my story in America. And I, yeah. I've been very grateful for that. And I think that, that with that comes a responsibility to be an advocate and supporter of all people seeking that experience and seeking that opportunity. Yeah. And yeah. I, I feel for somebody who's come through largely a non-traditional education background to have the opportunity to run an, uh, a project of this scale and be part of design and compliance and, and, and fundraising, it's, that's a, that, it, we live privileged lives, but to have a job like that is to be privileged as well. Yeah. And, and, yes. and, and it, if you recognize that, then I can work harder to make sure more people have opportunity. And that's what this campus is about, is to have long-term opportunity for underserved communities to, to actually have the same level of access that everybody has uh, to a national resource. The American people own the national parks. Everybody yeah. should be allowed in. Everybody Agreed. should be able to get a bed. Everybody should be able to wake up and have a great view in the morning. Agreed. Yeah. I, I, I again, I, I very much appreciate that and, and the work you're doing. Um, before we start to wrap up, I, I wanted to ask uh, one more question that I, I, I couldn't really fit in the beginning. I'm just, I'm curious on a, on a personal level, as, as an outdoorsman yourself who enjoys mountain biking, and I, I don't remember if you mentioned rock climbing, but, you know, I hear a lot of critiques um, in those communities that, oh, you're, you're messing up the, the, uh, the rock or your, your, you know, your, uh, mountain bikers are, are ruining trails. And I don't know. I, I mean, implications of even hiking through, uh, trails and parks aside, um, do you hear that a lot, you know, putting bolts in walls? I mean, or obviously you can't see them from the ground and the, 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 the damage tends to be minimal. I mean, do you, do you hear those types of critiques uh, working in the outdoor industry like you do? I just, it's something that I've heard somewhat frequently recently, and I'm just curious if you have an opinion on that. I, I think I think there's a rush to judgment at times. Right. I, it's, a, it's a little ironic to complain about a shiny bolt going into a rock face 2,000 feet off the deck when you're sitting on a two-lane highway running through a pristine <laughs> meadow. Like, yes. That, that to me is, well... Let's get some scale here about overall impacts. I think uh, you'll hear the fishing lobby moaning about boaters, but they're fishing waters that are stocked with an alien fish. (laughs) Um, And then you'll find boaters complaining, and yet fishing communities and wildfowl shooters are like really would like higher quality water because that means there's more birds that they can harvest and there's a healthier fish stock. So we have more in common and it, I like the idea of seeking common ground because we all like being the outdoors and breathing air. So let's all focus on clean air. That's a pretty good thing. Um, And in a reductionist world where we, we, we can get sucked into our specialized niche we become blind to other people's needs yeah i i I, it's interesting on the mountain bike end because 
the current debate or one of the current debates is whether e-bikes should be allowed on right, certain right. areas. And I'm I'm pretty sure when I'm getting in my 60s, which isn't that far off, I will probably have an e-bike because I love biking, but I won't have the same resilience I used to have for going uphill. And it's a really useful way for me to be out there. And I'm still a constituent for those spaces. Right. The, the, the thing we don't want to do is have such a divided user group and constituent group that we can't agree on something. And, and we should be building bridges. Absolutely. Not, not finding what is truth a very, for the most part, very minor issues to moan about. Yeah, and <laughs> long, oh, I I agree, and specifically, I, I don't personally understand the argument against e-bikes. I've never personally ridden one, so but to me, I mean, it's still human powered. You you have you have motor assistance, correct? Well, there's different scales of e-bike, and I, I've definitely had the. I've been scared by somebody coming up behind me very fast and silently on an e-bike, but sure. they're learning how to use it. And it so again, we're going to acculturate that. We're going to get to a point where we, we, we have a better code understanding, a better understanding how to be around other people's and how to respect stock users. Because as a bicyclist, you get off and stand on the side. For some reason, other members of a community might on an e-bike might choose to blast by a horse and then startle it. It's, it's common code and practice with newer technology, and it's going to take a while for us to catch right. up. And uh, it's like the idea of technology in the in the backcountry. People get all bent out of shape about people having their phones out there and taking, but people, but they're all taking photographs with a digital camera. What's the difference? It's <laughs> right. Maybe they're not watching the the restart up of Sex in the City at night in their. <laughs> 10 and that, that is a crime um yeah, but yeah. i i think that it all divides us and and it goes back to that community thing community is about dialogue exchange and listening in crisis communication your biggest single gift to any family in crisis is to listen to them yeah and our planet is in crisis and we need to listen to it and we need to listen to all these constituent groups and then we need to do a better job of explaining why and not in patronizing simplistic terms, but right. in with truth and, and science, why we need to change the way that we live. And, and that people see that as an uh, infringing on civil liberty or freedom. I, I, I think being scared to wander around the streets at night is, is a tragedy in a city. That's 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 not being free or being free of the threat of catastrophic wildfire and living for nine months in a traumatic, hyper aroused state because you're right. worried about fire. That isn't free. It's we need to find common understanding, common definitions. And, and that means community. It's it's understanding we have a responsibility almost to everybody else before our, before ourselves in order to create a better world. Equity <laughs> is based on listening. Equity is based on sharing. And I don't know why we're so frightened about that. Because as kids playing, one of the first things we learned to do was to share toys. Yeah. And the richness I, that comes with that. Absolutely. I, I absolutely could not have said that better myself. Um, Moose, I, I appreciate you spending an hour with me. Truly, it's been it's been amazing getting to know your story and getting to know how you're getting to experience nature in the way that you do. And it, it I don't want to say it creates envy in me because I, I think envy is a kind of a, a toxic word. It creates ambition within me to, to experience more of it and to share this message and get others to experience more of it. Because I think overall, the, the more we can connect with nature, the better we'll be at communicating with others and helping to create these foundations to preserving it. So everything you're doing is absolutely phenomenal. I'm, I'm so thankful for it. Um, and then along those lines, I, I do have a few closing questions. And the first one is, you know, what, what is it you're looking forward to, to, to continue your growth, either professionally, personally, or if it's the work you're doing uh, in Yosemite, what, what is it that you need to continue moving forward? 
I need to discover social elasticity. I think after two and a half years of being in and around COVID and sheltering, uh, rediscovering the joy of small talk and the uh, reducing the anxiety of social interaction and movement, I yeah. never thought I would be. I never thought I would struggle with that, and it, and it's been hard. And it's in the last few months I've started to discover the ability to adapt again to that yeah. social setup, and that I think a lot of people will be struggling with that. And so I think uh, I want to be an advocate for other people for really awkward conversations that we we've forgotten how to talk to each other. <laughs> be able to bring some happiness to that moment and some understanding without judgment. That's wonderful. Yeah, I, you're absolutely correct. I, I think as we, as we come out of this there, I, I, you know, I, this is a whole nother conversation, but as technology develops and we spend more time looking at our phones and other people in the eye, I mean, that, that, that ability to communicate has, has been dwindling in the, the last two and a half years certainly haven't helped that. So I, I applaud you in your effort to have, have more conversations and I, I aim to do the same. I, I think that's a great um, pursuit. Um, and then my next question for you, I always like to ask because it allows me to to continue building my reading list. Um, if you could name one book that's just had a profound impact in your life, what would that book be and why? Songlines by Bruce Chatwin. It was, it's a, Bruce Chapman was a, uh, a writer, a British writer who wrote a series of books. He wrote In Patagonia on the Black Hill. He wrote, they, they were essentially travelogues of being places, but he fought them being uh, published as travel books. He wanted them published as fiction because he was a storyteller. And Songlines is about a trip that he took in Australia and it's a mixture of, of a memoir and then uh, items out of his journal and, his, and things that he'd read. And it just blew me away. It was, I, I took it, it was the book I carried in my backpack for 10 years while I was backpacking around and it just was a gift every day. And he was, he was a bit of a fabulist. He, was, he, was, he could tell a good story and he would like yeah. move elements around but it doesn't take away from its its message about movement and its message about wild space. Yeah. Uh, and I I love that landscape. The uh, to to Australia is this it, 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 like areas in Southern Africa. There's an ancientness about that landscape that really uh, strikes a chord in my heart. And when I read that book, it remind it, it, it strikes that chord every time, and it res it just sits there and it hums, and that's what memory is. It's it's just sitting there, reminding you of the good stuff. <laughs> that's fantastic. I I had not heard of that prior to us speaking, but it, it sounds like something that I, I would love to read. So of course it will be in the show notes and uh, next time I have the opportunity to pick it up, I, I will certainly do so. And then um, Moose, my, my last question for you is if you could leave the audience with one call to action, either one that you live your life by or that you implore others to live their lives by, what would that be? Uh, I, I was living up on the Olympic Peninsula west of Seattle and I picked up a local newspaper and it had a bit, an obituary on the front page. And it was this man's life. And it laid out all these things that he'd done. And his life's mantra was, it's amazing what you can achieve when you don't care who gets the recognition. I and I, I've kept that paper and that because there's, there is, I have ego. I like to have recognition when I've done something good. But that always brings me back to, if you get that ego out of it yeah. and you're just aiming for this thing and you're trying to get other people excited about it, you're more likely to achieve it. And the end goal is the thing. It's not the recognition. It's the thing. Right. And uh, that's a good grounder to be more humble. That's perfect. 
Moose, again, thank you so much for this conversation and again, for all that you're doing. If people would like to connect with you, um, either online or if they want to find you on social media, and also I know we didn't get a chance to talk about it, but you're an author as well. What is the best place for people to find all about you? Uh, I'm on my website. It's www.moosemutlow.com. I'm on Instagram at moosemutlow. And I'm out on Amazon uh, and other good bookstores. If you just do Moose Mutlow author, and I've got a couple of books out about crisis communication and also a reflection on what it's like to work in search and rescue and the, the laughter and the tears that go along with missions. That's, that's fantastic. Again, I will make sure all of those links are available. And uh, Moose, thank you again. And I hope that we have the opportunity to stay connected. And if, I, if I'm able to, or when I'm able to make it out, uh, out west again, I would love to, to look you up. And uh, I would love, one, I'd love to see Yosemite. And if, if you're a willing uh, guide, I would love to uh, talk with you. Absolutely, Trey. Give me a shout when you're in town. I would love to show you Yosemite. Perfect. Thank you again, Moose, and I'm sure we'll talk again soon. Okay, bye-bye. One more time, I would like to extend a huge thank you to Moose for joining me on the podcast. I so enjoyed this conversation, and I'm so lucky to have gotten the chance to talk with him before the podcast ends in a few short weeks. In fact, I've got so many wonderful conversations coming up, so you don't want to miss those. If you enjoyed my conversation with Moose, and I hope you did, please be sure to check out the show notes at themosaiclifepodcast.com. You can find links to all the resources mentioned by Moose, as well as his website and social media channels. If I haven't said it a million times already, I'm going to say it again anyway. I'm so appreciative of you for taking time out of your day to listen to the podcast. I hope that you will continue demanding the very best for yourself now and into the future. And if there's anything I can ever do to support you, please don't hesitate to reach out and let me know. You can find me on Instagram at Trey Kaufman. That's T-R-E-Y-K-A-U-F-F-M-A-N. I look forward to talking with you again next week. And until next time, take care, do better, and be well. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.